My name is Bea Gonzalez, and I am a writer of mostly novels. And I'm Jay Rettelsberger, a singer-songwriter. We began a conversation on Twitter some time ago about Carl Jung, art, and the creative process, and we decided to share our discussion with all of you. So we have reached the episode where we're going to do a little bit of a turn and talk about the things we are both most passionate about. Me, books, you, music. And the way we're going to go forward is I'm going to start just right now uh, with just talking about a couple of books I recommend. Maybe I'll go one book, used to talk about some music, then I'll talk about the second book. And I've chosen a nonfiction book and a fiction book, right? Because obviously <laughs> I, I love both. I love any type of book. Weirdly, I'm reading more nonfiction uh, in the last decade or so than I do fiction, which is weird because I am primarily a fiction writer, but that's just the way it is. And so uh, what, what do you think about this new direction, Jay? You think this is good? Yeah, I like this direction. <laughs> what are you going to say, right? Well, right. okay. Can, can I explain why I started thinking about this and talk to you about maybe this is what we, well, first of all, because we share a lot of this with each other. So it makes sense that why not share it with everybody else? But the number one reason, the number one question, I should say, that I get asked on in social media, you know, I'm very active there, is give me a list of books, uh, you know, a top 100. Uh, I can give more than a top 100 for sure. But I don't think books without context make much sense to me. So I'd rather go slowly, suggest why some of these books, why I'm quoting so often from these books on Instagram or Twitter, primarily a little bit on Facebook, but more on the other two, and maybe give it a little bit more, I don't know, substance. Otherwise, you're just shooting off names and you're not really explaining why. Although if anybody's really carefully looking at what I'm posting, you can sort of stitch together why I may actually be <laughs> pointing to certain books, but whatever. I, I like to talk about books any day of the week. So let me start with a book. And I had to think about this because, my God, there are so many books I could recommend. But you and I had an episode that got, uh, uh, there was a lot of people listened to and, and some people commented on, on The Shadow. Uh, I think that was episode four. And we both agreed that The Shadow is at the fundamental piece that you have to start with. You have to really start looking at it. You may be lucky enough to get a young analyst or somebody who can guide you, but you can also pretty well um, start noticing things. And so people can go back to episode four if they want to get that background. And the reason they might is the first book I'd like to recommend is a book that was, um, uh, I don't know, I think it came out in 1994. So let me say now, because I'm a big book fiend, I had to think about, can I recommend books that are hard to find? If you go to abebooks.com, and I will do, I will definitely put this in the links afterwards, these links in the show notes, you can find any book in the secondhand market. And this one was is pretty good. You will be able to find it just if people are having trouble finding it through their local bookseller, because obviously books go out of print. And may I just scream in the wind and say, I wish they would digitize all books and we could buy them as eBooks at least. So some books wouldn't go out of print, but that's the way it is. Okay. So the book I'm recommending is called um, Meeting the Shadow. And the subtitle is The Hidden Power of the Dark Side of Human Nature. And the reason, and there are lots of great books on the shadow, but the reason I particularly want to recommend this one is that it's edited by Connie Swig, and she did a brilliant job because what she did is she put together a whole bunch of pieces from different places, all on the shadow. So you have Jung, you have Rollo May, you have Robert Bly, you have Joseph Campbell, you have uh, Marie-Louise von Franz, John Sanford, the list goes on, right? And you're getting an approach to the shadow issue from not the typical one, you know, 
uh, pronged, but you're looking at the personal shadow. You're looking at the shadow as it manifests politically. You're looking at it as, as it manifests in your spiritual life. Um, so there's a whole section on that that explores everything from Christianity right on to the tarot and astrology. I mean, all these shadow issues that pop up. Um, and you're, and also the shadow with respect to certain emotions like anger. Um, and so it's very thorough. It's a very, yeah, it's not, it's like, how many pages is this? It's, uh, um, well, it's about 500 pages. It's, and it has a great bibliography. So if you really want to follow uh, a specific writer, I always think it's really, really important to taste what a writer, because some people don't like certain styles. I, it's really interesting to me, for example, that when I post Robert Bly, sometimes what people will get ticked off. I love Robert Bly. I think he's a great, I, I suggest to people, please go to YouTube, put in his name and just listen to him recite poetry because that just is very particular way of speaking. Lots of people will give me political arguments. I don't care. I'm not interested. I'm interested in what they had to write. Does it speak to me? It speaks to me, um, but it may not speak to you. So read some of these essays, put some aside. I've uh, put some authors aside. If you don't like them, follow the ones you 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 want, but it's very comprehensive and I really highly recommend it. While I, while I say that, this group of people, I don't even know what this is. Oh, it's called A New Conscious Reader. They put, put out two other collections that are equally as good. I'm just going to mention them now because I probably won't have time ever to mention them. One is called Mirrors of the Self. Again, you have Von Franz, Helen Luke, you have Jung, Harding, Esther Harding, everybody, right? Uh, and the other one they did was, oh, what was it? Oh, it's for women. And it's, and I can't remember, but I, again, I will link it. And again, it's essays about women from the Jungian perspective. All of these, if you can have the three in your collection, I just think they're fantastic. And again, you are being exposed to a whole uh, variety of writers who will tell you a lot about the subject. Um, and then you can decide, yeah, like I like this one. I don't like that one. So that's my first pitch for a book that I think everybody should try to find. And again, not an easy find, but you can find it in the second hand book market and probably through Amazon and all the other online retailers. So there you are. That's my first. Uh, so it's a collection of um, different writers. Yeah. Essays or excerpts, yeah. for example, the Robert Bly right. piece. Kind, yeah. Kind of like the way Man in, in, in Assembles. Yes, that's uh, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. A yeah. collection of not just Jung, but Von France and other people. Yeah. And, and I think um, in the case, in this case, I think what's really interesting about it is I, th I like the different perspectives. I think it is good to, to, and, and I especially like, um, I especially like the fact that, um, that, uh, they, that there is different perspectives applied, not just from different authors, but to different aspects of the shadow, because we do have a, a political shadow. We have a national shadow, we have a religious. And so it's not just one area, which I think sometimes it gets reduced to. And so you can see how it how it's showing up in different places, and yeah, no, uh, definitely definitely worth worth whatever the heck they're going to charge you for it now. I mean, I, my price, of course, this was bought years ago, right? I don't even know what I paid for this, but anyway, you'll be able to find it in the secondhand book market. I think it's excellent. So, what about music? What are you going to tell me about music? I I did this uh, maybe a little bit differently. Okay. Than than you, I I, I went with two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I'm going to go to the second. You know that, right? I still have my fiction right. choice, but right. So okay. So do you want me to start with one, or do you want me to start with? Well, why don't two? you do one, and then I'll do one, and then you do okay. one, and people won't get sick of listening to either one of us. Hopefully, hopefully. Okay. Well, I was just looking at at uh, artists, not a particular album, but um, I will the the first the first one that I selected to talk about was the Beatles, of course. And you're rolling your eyes. Uh, 
No, I'm not um, rolling my eyes. I'm respectful. The but, Beatles are great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but I, and the reason why I think yeah. they are so important, there's many reasons, but um, I would say if you're going to start listening to the Beatles, you can skip through, although I, I listen to all of it, um, but their most seminal work begins with their like fifth or sixth album, which was Rubber Soul, which was created in 65. And from there on, what you start seeing is music, pop music being created as art and the construction of of an album as art, which has always entered, um, you know, before then, albums were more like just collections of songs. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so a lot of times you'll start getting themes, particularly, you know, you have Revolver after that, which is probably one of my top. Beatles albums if not the top but the one that most people look to is changing the game was um, Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band and the way that it was basically a themed album or a concept album that had kind of a, a thread going through it which which is you know very interesting but the the thing about the Beatles is that uh, it captures, uh, they capture in the, in the mid 60s, mid and late 60s, they capture really what's going on collectively. They were kind of a, a vehicle for that. So, uh, you know, the 1960s, especially the mid 60s was, you know, a time of, uh, of, of great creativity. And, um, you know, it, it impacted them probably more than anyone. Uh, but I also... I conceptualize the the Beatles as kind of the Apollonian aspect of creativity. They're very airy, uh, is how I would describe them, particularly John, uh, who's my favorite. Uh, and, and they take you, uh, you know, to these to these uh, very airy heights. You know, well, they the, just sorry to interrupt. What do you mean by airy? Define by, airy. Intellectual. Uh, yes, yes, intellectual, philosophical, um, and dreamy in a way. So a lot of what they did, they were the first musicians that actually, I think, really, the first band that treated the museum, the, sorry, the museum, the, um, the studio as, as an artistic tool. So they did a lot of it. They actually quit touring when they started with the Revolver album in 1966. And that's because for one, they were sick of touring and in the 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 teeny bopper stuff. And they started producing albums that basically couldn't be replicated live as well, because it was so uh, they were doing things that had never been done before. They were so innovative in, in creating sounds and loops and, uh, you know, backwards guitar and all these things. So they were they were kind of going wild in the studio and the studio itself was considered, you know, the fifth Beatle. So but that's what I mean by airy is is uh, and also, uh, you know, there's a there's kind of a, an ethereal quality to their sound, especially in that period that, uh, uh, you know, uh, they take you to the heavens. And, and so that that's um, that's basically it. Now, within the Beatles, John was always my my favorite because um, for various reasons, but he was a great lyricist and, and, and very creative and, and had a great ear for for uh, melody. 
but I I've, I carry on the Beatles' work through their post-Beatles work, uh, through their individual careers. So some of their some of their albums after their breakup are very important as well. And in the two be the first one being John's first one, which was called uh, the Plastic Ono Band, and uh, it was in 1970, and he was going through scream therapy. And that shows up in his work. And it's very, it goes from this ethereal place to this very grounded, earthy, minimalist type of production, which is very interesting. And then the other one, of course, which is uh, very important as well, when I'm looking at the Beatles work, when it comes to solo, I think it's the best uh, record ever made post Beatles would be George Harrison's All Things Must Pass, because it was... um, a lot of the stuff he got ignored as a Beatle and didn't get a lot of his songs on record. So a lot of that material came out on that. Well, first I'd like to defend myself since you said I rolled my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want anybody thinking, oh my God, she, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, my, my sense of music gets stuck in 19th century, extremely ridiculous opera to some. But I would like to say that my brother did play the Beatles endlessly when I was young and I think tortured me into not liking them. Uh, so uh, not liking them or having little patience, but but you have right. you have told me to 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 listen to certain songs, and I I've had to change my view somewhat. So so just explain the rolling of the eyes business. Um, uh, I'm just just going back to one thing before I get to, uh, get to the next. Uh, uh, I'm not quite clear what makes something an art album and what makes something just a collection of songs. Well, what's the difference? I would say, like so. The I would say the Beatles' first four or five albums would be a collection of songs. It's just material they wrote and said, "Well, we're going to put that on the record or whatever. We've got we've got a record due. We're going to put this on a record. The record record companies needing material. We need to put it out there." I would I would consider an album an artistic album whenever. Uh, the process when there's a little more patience to the process and you're kind of immersed in the process a little bit more as far as what's going on at the time. Right. So w- the, the other thing, that, the thing that that really made the switch with the Beatles from, you know, 1964 to 1965 was they became more introspective. No. Um, they got into Bob Dylan and in more folk music and a, a switch was flipped. So they quit writing, you know, I want to hold your hand and, you know, those silly things. And they went into a more, more introspective yeah. space. And uh, so their albums carried more of that. Okay. So, so I would say, firstly, you have to have the right material to write an artistic album. Mm-hmm. You have to, you have to, there has to be um, a certain degree of reflection, first of all, and then the way it's produced then that's another aspect of it with okay. what you're using to produce it, the, the instrumentation, the arrangements. Uh, I would say that would be another part of it.
So from for my second book, I'm going to tell a story. I think I might have told you this a long time ago, and I think I even did a Twitter thread one day because uh, at some point people were, were, you know, you go through periods on social media where you get some really weird people coming on and making crazy comments, and I was just feeling deflated, and I don't know what was going on in my mind. So I did this long Twitter thread about the book that made me a writer, uh, the book that launched me or pushed me into changing my path. And uh, it's a book that most people haven't heard of. It was a huge book for what happened and how it influenced other writers. But I'm pretty sure that uh, it'll be interesting. I hope somebody does email in and say, yes, I have heard of that book. I've read it. I'd like to hear about this. So a little bit of a backstory is I was in graduate school in England with a very, I was very certain I was going to get my PhD in history and, you know, be a historian and all sorts of things that never came to pass. But it was during, I just finished my master's and I was doing a program, specialization program of all places at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, because I was trying to shift to the history of medicine. Anyway, long and short of it is I was living in an international residence where there was this uh, great collection of Spanish speaking students. And although I was born in Spain, I've lived a lot of my life in Canada, even though I did do high school in Spain. So it was back and forth, but obviously I love speaking Spanish and I just wanted to I just gravitated towards these students, even though we were an international residence with people from all over the world. These are the ones. And yeah, frankly, they were very lively and they had great parties and it was just great. But there was one particular student who didn't seem to like me. No matter what I did, he just just did not seem to warm to me. He was Mexican. His name was Jesus uh, Sanchez. And he, he uh, yeah, he just keep away from me. Uh, eventually I wore him down because I just refused to take no. And I kept saying, well, anyway, he, he became my friend. He later explained he was very politically active. And when he heard me speak uh, English, he thought I was American. When he heard me speak Spanish, he knew I was Spanish because from Spain with my accent. And so he he thought it came from the two most deplorable countries in his mind because he was very <laughs> active in Mexico. Um, what was great about our friendship, I also had a friend with him. One of my closest friends was an American, and he became very close friends with Jonathan as well. And he said to me at the end, it taught me a lesson not to judge people by their accents or where they come from, because clearly I'm not responsible for the murderous behavior of my ancestors 500 years ago, and neither is uh, Jonathan responsible for the bad decisions that the American government might make. So that was all a good thing. Anyway, uh, when he left, he was doing a PhD uh, in chemistry at the Imperial College, and he finished prior to us finishing. And he, we had a big party for him, and he took me aside and said, look, I want to give you something that I think every Mexican should give everybody because it is the biggest gift Mexico can give. And it was a book, and it was a novel by a writer named Juan Rufo, who I had never heard of. And this little book uh, called Pedro Paramo, again, I will link it because I, it's a name, so it might be hard to understand. Anyway. I took it and I said goodbye. Uh, in those days, there was no FaceTime or whatever. So even though he said he would keep in touch, he never kept in touch with anybody. Uh, I want to finish the story in one way, though. He did eventually, three years later, I was at a well, sort of a grocery store in London. And I look out the, the window and I see Jesus. And I was like, oh, my God, it's not Jesus. How can he be back in London? And I ran out and it was Jesus. And we, we had lunch and he, and it was kind of like this really sad story that we went back, you know, PhD in chemistry, I'm going to go work and I'm going to make the, the workers rise up. And well, the workers weren't interested in him because he had a PhD in chemistry and they thought, well, that, you know, you're a snob and, and the, the people who were management didn't really like him either because, you know, you're, you're trying to rile up the workers. So he ended up back in London doing a postdoc and it was just such a, it just, I remember him feeling so deflated. And I was still pretty young at that time. He might've been in his late twenties, but I remember just that feeling of wanting to change things so badly and uh, it not happening. Fast forward, uh, I took that book. I, I, I read the book and I remember thinking, 
at the time, uh, this is what I want to do. I don't really want to be in a PhD program. I, I, I had a real problem, you know, as you can tell from everything I talk about, I had a real problem focusing. I really needed to, I was so interested in so many different things that although I love the subject I was studying, I just, I, I didn't want to do it for, you know, three years in a row to produce this thesis. So I left it. And I thought, okay, I'm going to, I came back to Canada and I started my career as a writer. So I always look at that book and reading that book and thinking, oh my God, this world is amazing. And I, <laughs> I just, uh, this is the kind of world that is in my head. I just can't communicate it the way this, this, you know, this person can, because he's so talented. Uh, fast forward, I've now published two books and, um, I end up, uh, I'm, I'm, I've talked about this before, I lead these tours for a, a group here in Canada, which sort of merges literature and travel. And um, when when someone asked me, the person who was leading it asked, or who was organizing asked me, what book would you like to do? And where, where would you like to go? After I went to do Lorca in Spain, I said, hey, let's go to Mexico, the Yucatan, and um, Medida, this beautiful city in the Yucatan, and let's do Juan Rufo. And so she said, okay, I never heard of it, let's do it, no problem. So we went out and we did it. And when we got to the Yucatan, uh, we always got local guides who show us around. We had this lovely man by the name of Braulio, and uh, he he, uh, he he had a little bus and he took us everywhere. And we were insane because the people that kind of go on these trips, we ask so many questions. We tire people out so badly because we're interested in everything. So we would stop, stop every two seconds and jump out and show us something and tell us a Mayan story about it. It was great. Uh, and, but anyway, at some point, we'd always say, I'd say, Braulio, okay, give us two hours. We've got to talk about this. And we'd scurry off and have this conversation. So he, he said to me, well, okay, what's going on? What are you guys doing um, during those two hours? And I said, well, you know, we're talking about this book called, and he said, well, what's the book? And I said, well, it's Juan Rufo, blah, blah, blah. He said, I've never heard of it. I've been trained by the Tourism Board of Mexico. Why don't I know this book? Let me give you a little bit of background on, on Juan Rufo um, is... Um, a writer who who published this book in 1955. He was also, um, I think he wrote screenplays, but actually he didn't write that many novels, right? But he publishes this book and sells no, no copies of it um, at the beginning. But he ends up, and this is, I think music works the same way, right? He ends up being so influential to the people who end up being so powerful. And one of them was Gabriel Garcia Marquez, winner of the Nobel Prize in 1982. The incredible writer of 100 Years of Solitude and Love in the Time of the Cholera, who says this is the book. And one of the reasons is this book takes place in a, in a land you don't know everybody's dead, everybody's alive, you're really entering this incredible dream world, so rich, and you're trying to make your way through, you're trying to say, yeah, what's real, what's not real, really rich, really beautiful. Uh, and there's a pretty good translation, I think with a foreword by Susan Sontag, it's out there, easily found. Anyway, this book that went from, you know, a couple thousand copies being sold and nobody paying attention, Borges, uh, Marquez, Carlos Fuentes, all of these big, big Latin American boom writers suddenly put it on the map and it ends up selling millions of copies much later, by the way, because he died, I think, fairly, he, he died fairly young, well, in the 60s and 1986. But so he saw that this book did have a life outside of uh, when it was first published. Um Anyway, going back to Juan Rufo, when I told Braulio, I said, hey, look, we're discussing this book. And he said, well, I, I don't, uh, I, I, I've never heard of it. I said, and, but he said, but I'd love to be able to discuss this with you because I'm Mexican. I should, and I said, yeah, that would be great, but you have to read the book. That's the first rule of our group. You cannot join if you don't read. So I had the copy that Jesus had given me back in London. And I said, here, here's a book. Um, read it. If you can read it, then you can join the last. We had a, a last uh, meeting that was going to happen like two days from, from that 
that moment. So, okay, first of all, that was stupid because then he spent the entire time taking us to places to know this and say, just go out. I'm just going to read and sit, sit in. <laughs> so we lost our guide, but we thought this is worth it. Anyway, he did join us um, for the last conversation. It was beautiful. He, he really added so much that we wouldn't have had as a bunch of, you know, uh, Americans and Canadians talking about this book from our perspective and trying to figure it out. And he told us about his family and it was just beautiful. And at the end of it, when we were saying goodbye, I said, you know, he said to me at the end of it, thank you for giving me the gift of Mexico back. Cause I told him about, uh, I told him about uh, Jesus and how I first got this book. And so the book is still with Braulio somewhere in the Yucatan as we speak. Um, but for me, beyond the fact that it's a beautiful book that has so much impact. And I think that's really important to me. Like what are the novelists and the books that other writers pick up on and create a whole movement that maybe they didn't intend or for sure they didn't intend but that becomes this incredible way so he really is the father of magical realism and by the way the other author who was very influenced who i really adore is Salman rushdie who also was influenced by this whole idea of looking at the world and what i'm going to do for people is i'm going to link the one of the masterful stories of gabriel garcia marquez which is available it's only i think two and a half pages and it is so touching it's called uh, The Very Old Man with Wings, I think, something like that. It's beautiful. And so you'll get a sense of what magical realism is. It's so, it is like being transported into a dream world that still is very political, uh, has all the big themes. The best love story in my view written is Love in the Time of the Cholera by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. So he they, they take on a lot of subjects, but the way that it's done with language and you just, you just, you just get lost in it. So that's my fiction recommendation. And of course I'm doing it because it had such an impact on me as a writer as well, because my first two novels specific, not the latest one, but my first two was definitely influenced by that whole group of people who had come out and just totally enchanted me is the only, the only way I can put it. Yeah. So you read that while you were studying in London? Yeah, that's what made me leave London. <laughs> well, one of the many reasons, but I think when I read it, I said, there's possibility here. Like, I think, you know, this is a musician. One of the big things that we all hide in, in academic programs or in, you know, legal <laughs> careers is that we're afraid, right? You're afraid to, to say, I commit to this. I commit to this because, you know, the path is really arduous and nobody's going to help you out. It's, it's really not an easy path. And so to me, it was an act of, for me anyway, it was, okay, I'm going to break away from the, the PhD, the, 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 the letters or whatever I think I need and, and embark upon it. And I did, I left and I came back and I, you know, basically wrote anything I could get published. I was writing op-ed pieces. I was writing essays. I was writing anything I could get published. And then I was fairly lucky in that my first novel was accepted by HarperCollins pretty early on in the game. So I, I basically started writing the novel and it was accepted a year later. Very lucky that way. But it, it really required a leap of faith. I think that's the hardest thing for people. And you mm -hmm. can do, by the way, and the other thing I should say, because I say this to group members all the time, you can take that leap anytime in your life. You don't have to be 29. You don't have to be 35. You can be 60. You can be plenty of people are taking that leap. And um, and it's 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 sad when you don't. And the other thing is, it's not like you're trying to make a career out of it necessarily. The writing is the thing. I remember I had a friend, Tamash, from Australia. He would say, look, the writing is the whole thing. It doesn't matter if you sell it. It doesn't matter if anybody even reads it. Are you getting some sort of feeling of, of satisfaction from writing it? And, and I do. I, I, I very much do. And when I haven't, I haven't written. That's just the way it is. There was a whole stretch of time after my second novel that I just didn't have that feeling. And then I came back with invocation. I really needed to, to stitch something inside. So yeah, so that book was really, in, in a sense, it was part of a whole bunch because from Juan Rulfo, I went to Marquez, I went to Sabal Allende, I went to, you know, all of these people. So there I am reading all of these magical realists when I was supposed to be learning about 19th century disease in, in, in Spain. So it, it, clearly the PhD in, in, in the history of medicine was going nowhere. And I realized 
my attention isn't there. What I'm really passionate about is this. So yes, it was very important for me to break, make the break. It helped me anyway. Yeah. The winds of my soul blow. Spirits of So do you have, okay, what's your second pick uh, of, of music? I was going to say, do you have a similar story, but why would you have a similar story? Whatever whatever the second uh, piece that you were thinking, or the second group, music, I don't know what you're bringing up here, so I'll let you talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't I don't have a story like you have. I, I just <laughs> okay, well. I can't I can't I can't I can't um, I can't put that together. You know the the second album the the second artist uh, is another band from the '60s and and I was just in high school I was drawn to the '60s uh, is the Doors and the reason I, I thought it was important to pair these are probably the, early on the most two influential bands were the Beatles and the Doors for me. And the reason I'm bringing up, I think it's such an interesting pairing, despite the fact that it was so influential, is because the Doors represent the shadow of what the what the Beatles represented. Oh, interesting. Uh, they formed at the same time that the Beatles were starting to get more artistic and less poppy. Uh, the Beatles were always poppy but they got more artistic so they formed in 65 and this is just before uh, flower power the the lead singer and the organist jim morrison and raymond zarek were very they were both in film school so they were they were um had artistic sensibilities uh but they were also big fans of the beat poets in the the beat generation and they were too late for that so in 65 they formed the band and it, the the basis of it was kind of this idea of uh, blending poetry in instead of jazz like the like the beats did it was it was poetry and rock music but they were uh did this in the spirit of the of jazz they were very free flowing but the reason the the true essence behind it is is not only did the poetry influence me because it's what got me really into wanting to write more creative, more creatively. Uh, I'd always been pretty, uh, um, pretty into writing, but this took me in a, a whole different direction. But it, it's the shadow side, the, the Dionysian type of, of thing that the, the doors represent, where the Beatles take you, you know, to the cosmos, the doors take you to the underworld. And, and so that is the uh, other part of this era. And so by 66, The Doors have their first album, self-titled album, and it's brilliant. It, it's full of energy. Uh, it's, it's, it has both darkness and the light in it, but, it, but it's, it's, uh, it, it's a great energetic album and you just feel the energy of the time through it. I think they really captured something. They captured what no one else at that time was capturing. At the time, they dubbed the uh, critics dubbed the Rolling Stones the anti-Beatles, 
but the Rolling Stones didn't get as deep as the Doors did uh, by any measure. And so if I were going to recommend any albums by the Doors, it would be their first two, their, their, um, their self-titled album, uh, which is the Doors, and then their second album, Strange Days, which is a little bit more, which is even darker and a little more paranoid. But the, the, there's two songs from each of those, or there's a song from each of those, and they're always on the, they're both on the last end of the song, of the album. One is the song, The End, which uh, is the first song of its type I've ever heard. Um, one of the things that the Doors were great at doing was there was a space in their, in their music. The Beatles filled the space but the doors had left space open. And that was such a different experience mm -hmm. listening to it because that allows, you know, the, the listener I think is more open. And uh, so there's less, there's less interpretation going on and it kind of invites you into the world. And then uh, the, the second song is the last song on their second album called When the Music's Over. And uh, same type of thing. But really in my life, that band is what um, really kickstarted my creative drive. And so, so they, they were the kickstart to the whole thing for me creatively. And then the Beatles came in and helped me polish that, right. if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I like the combination what you said about the Apollonian versus the Dionysian, because I can actually hear that, even though, you know, I don't have that much uh, I have listened to, I, well, certainly the first I've listened to a lot, but the second, not as much until you, we did that episode, if you remember, Killing the yes. Father. And that, yes. of course, that story is woven into uh, the song, The End. Um, anyway, and people can go back and listen to that. I think it was episode two or three. But but yeah, I can hear the the darkness in one. And, and actually, it is so interesting you said that. Until you mentioned uh, the Beatles to me at some point the later Beatles, I think what bugged me was the lightness. I mean, I didn't mm -hmm. like, I want to hold your hand. Just like, right. I hate silly, I hate that song by McCartney, Silly Love Songs. And yeah. I think it's because <laughs> it's because I'm too serious for my own good. I'd rather listen to the love death uh, motif right. from, from, you know, um, Tristan and Solde, Wagner's Tristan and Solde. So they kind of bugged me. It's like, oh, get that yeah. stuff out. But when I listened to The Doors, I thought, wow, okay, this is a totally, I can feel a totally different experience. And I, I do everything by feeling. So it's like, oh, okay, stop. Um, so yeah, no, I can, I can actually. Well, it, it's like there was a vacuum created by all this love and light stuff. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and that's who the doors are. They, they occupied that vacuum. And, oh, yeah. and uh, that's why I appreciate them so much. I mean, you yeah. can have whatever opinion you want to about the doors people some people make them a joke some people say morrison was a poser and that's all fine but uh there's no mistaking you know psychologically in the collective where they uh the space that they occupied uh and and the importance of that so that's that's something that you know i still listen to both of these bands from you know time to time well, it's interesting because we didn't talk about the books that we were going to um, mention today. I didn't tell you. And I'm just looking through this. I mean, one of the chapters, one of the sections, she, Connie Swig, uh, not only divides them into sections, but gives great introductions to the subject that these writers are going to explore in these sections. And one of them is definitely uh, owning your dark side through insight, art, and ritual. Uh, the One of the better ways, I think, to process shadow material is through engagement with 
art in some level, whether it's a book or I think of Dostoevsky taking me to those places. And I'll talk about him in a future episode, but, but yeah, absolutely. Um, even Juan Rufo takes you to a place where you're uncertain. You, you, your, your boundaries dissolve. And that is a scary place, right? That, is, that, is, that was exactly the whole point of the doors, especially when they were doing live performances. I mean, very seldom did they play the same song the same way right. every right. night. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was really uh, a here and now moment. I mean, it was, it, it was, uh, uh, that that's where the jazz component comes right. in. And, and when I say the spirit of jazz, that's what they did. They, they improvised right. all the right. time. Yeah. And so yeah. there was a danger, there's a danger to that because sometimes they did fall on their face and they, yeah. you know, uh, but sometimes it was great. It's fine. I mean, it's, I love it because that is that is the thing that makes things exciting when something doesn't go to plan and you're like, oh, which I don't think in most music, the way I hear it, that's not the case. Now, the reason maybe I like Wagnerian opera is that the music demands so much from the singer that you're not mm-hmm. sure they're going to survive it. In the right. production I saw him bring, um, the part three is the one where um, Siegfried really has to do a lot of singing. And purportedly, he had uh, a water bottle hidden inside of his... Uh, tunic or whatever he was wearing and he was sipping because it is so demanding of of the singer so it kind of makes it interesting to say okay can they hit those notes before they you know um, right i mean that's not why you're watching you're watching it because you're right again in a mythological world and in a mythological adventure in his case but it's interesting you know that that is that element of it's not so rehearsed you're getting the canned you know here i am i'm doing this for the 50th time that that because for the audience member that's your first time you know most of the time mm-hmm. so it's like yeah you want something a little bit more exciting so moving on to what you're listening now to now what are you listening to currently that is making you excited about music anything or? there's probably three or four things i'm listening to um and i go back and forth i weave in and out of time i listen to current stuff stuff right. that's older I, i'm listening a lot to a band called interpol which I discovered around 2001, 2002. They're from Manhattan. And uh, they are they are kind of like a um, reemergence or this this rebirth of things that were going on musically in the in the early 80s. So there's some bands that heavily influenced them from that period. And they kind of reimagined that sound in their own way. And it is, it does have kind of a, a darker, heavier feel to it the po- the the lyrics are pretty poetic i listen to uh one of my favorite people right now as far as singer songwriters goes is uh, the name of angel olson yeah, um yeah. yeah she's very soulful great lyricist uh but she does whatever she wants to do uh she's all over the place stylistically and and i appreciate that um she you just you just get uh, all kinds of a sense of this person's really free creatively. No, uh, yeah. And then there, there's a band that I'd, I'd recently stumbled across called The Moth and the Flame. Their first album was from 2011, and that's the only one that I really listened to. And that was uh, self-released, so they weren't on a record label whenever they released this album. Right. And uh, it's very ethereal, and uh, it's... Uh, I don't, I don't know. It just put, it puts me in a, in a really strong feeling state, I would okay. say. Well, that's what music is supposed to do. So that's, that actually right. makes sense. Yeah. 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 Do reading. Well, 
what am I reading? A book I've been screaming about on, on social media. So I might as well talk about it. Um, so Inner City Books, publisher here out of Toronto. Love them. You know that I've mentioned them many times. They've published so many Jungian analysts, just, you know, giving different perspectives on different things. The founder of Inner City Books, Daryl Sharp, died about five years ago and have no books have been released since then, but they've just released one that I just finished reading and I love. It's by Gary Sparks, J. Gary Sparks, who I love his other books that Inner City Books did. Um, one on Von France. I'm just so jealous that he actually had access to Marie Louise Von France, just to say that right now. It's amazing that he did. Anyway, um, what, why I think people should have this if they're interested in Jung, uh, they should have this in the collection, is he takes on the really difficult Jung, the later Jung, you know, so Ion, Mysterium, and um, Answer to Job, that's what he finishes with. And I'd kind of be interested in what you'd have to think about that section of it, because it is very intense. And he explains it very well. That's the thing. He goes through it methodically, he connects it, he starts with symbols of transformation, and, and somehow stitches it all together by giving you the really important parts. Uh, so highly recommend that book. I think everybody who's serious about Jung should read that book. Not very long, it's about hundred and. 20, 50 pages, not, not hugely long. And you can get it from inner city uh, books directly. I will leave a link as well, but I thought that was fabulous. And that that's the other stuff I'm reading is more related to the new book I'm writing. So very esoteric. I don't think anybody really wants to read it beyond me. I will try to distill it, not, not make a, you know, kill it. But that particular book, I think, you know, I, I really liked it. And I think people should have in their collection. So that that's the book. Yeah. Wandering river Winds through the sand Desolate desert So what are you working on personally right now? What's, what's going through your mind? Personally, I'm in the um, studio working on uh, an album of new material. I, I completed one song in November, and I'm in the process of completing the second one. Right. Um, Maybe and... we'll use that first song. How about you think? Wait, should we use that first song for this episode? Sure. That'd be kind of sure. cool. Yeah. yeah. So you can see where you're heading, because it is very different from some of the other material. So yeah, let's do, yeah, we'll do that. And, and so I'm almost finished with the second song and uh, I go back in at the end of this month and get it finished up and we'll hopefully have it released by early April sometime. That's, so is it Apollonian or is it Dionysian? Do you think? What's kind uh, of I, 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 what, what kind of album? What kind of music is what kind of, yeah. What's going on here? I don't know that I'm, I'm, that's an interesting question. Cause I don't know that I'm too far on either side of that axis. Well, uh, gee, you should be. You should be right in the underworld. <laughs> a good visit uh, to the underworld is always interesting. Uh, I, I can hear a little bit of both, actually, in your first song, the one we're right. It's a little bit of both. Right, right. Well, the story behind it is certainly an underworld yes. journey, but the song kind of functions as putting that into perspective, I would say. Right. This song, I would say, the one that I'm working on right now is kind of an underworld song as well, but it's kind of the experience of being caught in darkness and being hesitant of stepping into the light. 
And it's not until you step into the light that you realize you needed the darkness. No. I would I would say that's what this song is. Sounds like um, you've just come out of the midlife crisis there, Jay. <laughs> Which is basically it. You go into the dark and then you come out and you go, oh, I'm still around. I can see the I can see the path out. Yeah, no, no, it's important, that process. Which, by the way, doesn't only happen in midlife. It happens all the time. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Oh, hmm. what are you well, what are you working on? Well, a reader of my last novel, Invocation, on Instagram. Um, this is so interesting how your mind works. So I had this, uh, you know, I was mentioning in Invocation just got published, blah, blah, blah. And somebody jumps on and says, oh, um, is there is this part of a series? Because she just read the first one, liked it and said, well, this is going to be part of a series. And I said, no. And then as soon as I typed it, I, I said, yes. <laughs> um, and I realized that uh, oh my God, I, the reason I wrote Invocation was to be able to merge what I find interesting within the context of a story. So I could hide all of the things we talk about in a love story. What better place to hide something, right? Because it, it looks light and cheery. And uh, right. a, a colleague of my husband's uh, wrote to him after he read the book and said, yeah, I thought I was, uh, I was taking, uh, I was, I was getting the book and it was going to be a beach read. And now I've got a, <laughs> a reading list the size <laughs> because of what, Pointing out right. that, of course, it's hiding something that I hope is a little bit deeper. So as soon as she said that, I could hear the voice of one of the four major characters in my novel basically say, yes, my story. And it's Danny, the other female character. And I thought, OK, I really want to talk about alchemy. I really, really want to talk about alchemy. How? And then immediately, I'm not making this up, immediately the whole story just started downloading what was going to happen, where she was going to end up, how I was going to work this into it how I was going to link the first to the, so yeah. So as I speak to you right now, I'm just kind of in, in bits, just the stories coming to me. And what's great about, I, I don't know how you work, but for me, the creative process is fun because it grabs you when you're not expecting it. So you're just walking and mm -hmm. all of a sudden I go, oh my God, yes, that's what's going to happen. But even better, I am reading a lot of obscure books about alchemy. And of course, alchemy was something that young really paid attention to because it's the original form of depth psychology, right? That's really mm -hmm. what it is. And it's really about getting to know parts of yourself using wonderful Juan Rufo type of language, a language you enter and you go, where the hell am I? I don't even know if I'm dead or alive, well, what's going on? And so the whole thing comes together really nicely. So yeah, so I'm really enjoying this part of it because the way I write is I don't write until everything is clear in my head. And then I sit down and then I, you know, I just try to do it as quickly as possible because I'm incapable of doing anything slowly. So I understand this about myself now and I just wait. And then when it has to be written, I will probably disappear for, for a while and then just write, write, write every day until it's all out. So that's where I'm at right now. I'm just in the fun stage of, Oh, what's going to happen. And who are these characters? You're incubating. I'm incubating. Yes. Which is, which is the, actually the, the, the part, which, you know, a lot of writers, especially, and probably for musicians as well, get very scared when they're not, like someone will ask me, do you wake up in the middle of the night with an idea? I do, but I never get up to write it down. I'm not that right. anxious. My view right. of life is if it's good, it'll stay, right? So what's fun about this part for me is that you feel really alive with these characters, mm -hmm. but you're not really driven yet to to make the material of them. And of course, they materialize once they're on the page and I'm not ready for that yet. So I'm just enjoying that phase because I don't really have time to, to put these. <laughs> I'm just doing so many things. So actually, I can't even fit it in, but I, I'm, I'm really enjoying that process. And let's see. I mean, I think I have a second book and I think I can probably write it for this year and get it out pretty soon. So it'll be part of that series. And it will be a good bookend to the to the first one. So yeah, so that's what's happening with me at the moment. 
And like I said, so I can't mention the books. So you can't mention. Oh, the books I'm reading are so strange that I think of, you know, they're like published by academic publishers. Forget it. I mean, you know, they would look at it and say, why are you recommending this book? They're almost unreadable. Well, what century were they written? <laughs> oh, no, there are books that are written to, oh, one of them, the Ugo the Santalia is something that's written, it's written about a very mysterious, this is really the story. And I'm kind of, and here's the fun part. I'm trying to find the story of this alchemist from the 13th century Spain. He was mentioned very peripherally in, a, in an essay. And I thought, oh, my God, who is this person? Because if I understood what was being referenced, Ugo de Santalla, uh, alchemy went through Spain because the, 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 basically uh, uh, the Arab uh, rulers of Spain during the, the Middle Ages, um, you know, they, they held all the knowledge. They were the ones translating mm -hmm. all the texts when the rest of Europe wasn't online, really. And so a lot of great alchemy was done by both Jewish and Arabic writers. Uh, someone once said uh, famously, it seemed to have skipped over all the Castilians because I guess they were too busy sitting around, uh, you know, being dandies. But anyway, these, these, these writers, these alchemists were doing some pretty intense work. And what was referenced in this, in this paper was this Ugo had hidden in the story of Parsifal, which as you know, I love. Um, he had hidden the map of the skies in the story of Parsifal. And so that really, I thought, what? What is he doing? Why? And of course, the map of the skies for alchemists, astrology, the understanding of uh, the relationship of metals with planets, it's just a form of communicating knowledge, right? So I'm trying to track this guy down. And I did find that there was this book, one of his books written and translated at the Warburg Institute, which is going to play a really big role in my novel in London. Uh, it was part of the University of London. Uh, and so, yeah, so I'm chasing this guy down. And as I chase him down, he is going to be part of the story. He is actually the person that will hopefully come to life through Danny's obsession, because she is the obsessed character in the, in the first novel, of trying to figure out what is this guy up to. Maybe I'll figure it out. There won't be a great novel, but no, I'm going to have fun trying. <laughs> it, it sounds fascinating because it's like, uh, you know, you have um, you have things that I, I you're going to think I'm just like, I, I don't want to I, I don't want to say anything that's that you would think is disparaging here. But no, there, no, there's ahead. there's, you know, there are stories that are written like this, but not quite written in this way where you're searching for something physical right that ends up you know some relic that yeah. that ends up in the end it illuminates something internal yeah. but this is much more direct yeah totally in that in that you know but but it still has that type of quality as you're trying to unearth something yeah and and so that's an exciting story that's i hope it is yeah. It's exciting for me, yeah. but then I'm very geeky yeah. and like things that most people don't like. But I realize that what people love is a good mystery. And if they're, for me, this person is a mystery at this moment, right? Mm -hmm. And what he was up to is a mystery. And what all the alchemists were up to is a mystery. And if I can somehow bring it into the whole story that she is as obsessed as she always is uh, about why and what it means. And at the end of the day, you know, it means nothing because it's the search that gives you, makes you feel right. alive. And so she's looking for what Campbell talked about a way of being alive. And when I'm doing this, I feel very alive. So that's it. Whether it turns mm -hmm. out to be something anybody wants to know, I don't, it doesn't even matter because that's not what the story is about. It's about her 
getting into contact with herself. I think that's the story because, you know, it's in early stages. So God knows what mm-hmm. the story is going to be. I shouldn't even be talking about it. There's this whole uh, thing about. <laughs> I know. It, it's like you feel like you're jinxing yourself. Or no, something no, like that. I'm not. You know what? I'm not. In my view of life is, you know what? If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. I don't sweat it. <laughs> no, but I, I get it. I, I do that with songs, too. Like I'll have this great idea or something that's that's there and then it, i feel like it loses its power if i talk yeah, if you about, talk it. about and, it well thank you yeah. for helping me lose it uh, get my idea to lose its power i really appreciate it thank you actually <laughs> one thing i know is that wherever i start and think i'm going is not the direction i end up in yeah. so no matter what yeah. this is what's going to make it really interesting anyway so we'll we'll try again next week to see what other books we are because i definitely have a list i have like i'm surrounded by yes you do books. Thanks for listening. If you like Jay's music and would like to support the creation of more, follow the link to the GoFundMe page in the show notes. You can support my work by buying my new novel, Invocation, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and through many booksellers across the world. For now, until next time. The stories that we... Wait...